Tonight, we're going to talk about repentance. And if you've been around Christians, um, you've maybe heard that word. Um, literally, it means to turn. But I think there's some misunderstandings among a lot of Christians about what you're turning from and what you're turning to. Um, and so I thought we would look at these two different chapters in Hosea because they actually are pretty, pretty good contrast. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first part in Hosea 6, talk about that a little bit, then we'll read Hosea 14 and talk about that a little bit. All right? Does that make sense? So we're talking about repentance, and we're going to look first at Hosea chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning mist, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them or cut them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And the first part of this is God's people speaking. And then God responds in verse 4. All right, So that's the us. And it sounds pretty good. But we're going to dig into it a little deeper and maybe see... Um, what's really going on here. Let's pray together, and then we're going to dig into this. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Give us grace. Send your spirit to help us now as we come. Um, open our eyes to see Jesus more beautiful and believable. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it sounds pretty good. Let us return to the Lord. Sounds like somebody who's a leader, faith, maybe an SLA or you know a pastor or somebody. Come on, let's return to the Lord. Come on, guys, follow me, right? It seems... Like a pretty good thing. As a matter of fact, in the 70s, uh, in a Christian group that I was part of, there used to be a song that basically was these words verbatim. Well, not down to verse 4, because verse 4, God seems to not be so impressed. But it starts out sounding good. And if you pull those three verses out, you can even turn it into a little song, which we used to do, and sing it. But when you start to dig in a little closer, you might see some things that are a little troubling. Look at verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. Why? Because he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Now, we certainly, if you've been around RUF, I hope you understand that when you relate to God, and we try to bring this out a lot, when you relate to God, you're not relating to, like, a mathematical formula. You're relating to a person. And God has different ways that he works at different times to draw you to a deeper trust in him and his love for you. And sometimes his wounds are like the precise cut of a surgeon to bring healing. So I don't think there's a problem with the idea that God would wound his people to bring them to a greater healing. 
There's other places in the scripture that talk about that. But when you read this, it seems that the motivation for returning to the Lord is because of the wounding. Doesn't it? It seems motivated by God's wounding rather than an acknowledgement of their sin. There's no, let's return to the Lord. We've turned away from him. No, it's let's return to the Lord because he's wounded us. And if we return to him, he can heal us and he will bind us up. And then you get down to verse two and it seems even more like they're treating God in a mechanical way. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he'll raise us up. Look, all we got to do is go back to him, say we're sorry, and then he's going to do this. And it's predictable. Now, it could be a reference to God's faithful character. It could be. But I read this, I get a sense that it seems they're a little more, they just expect it. Uh, It's kind of the, the last words recorded that Voltaire said when he was asked, are you afraid to meet God? And he said, no, God will forgive me. That's his job. There's a little bit of that. Are, are you afraid to go to God and acknowledge your sin? No, he's torn us. If we acknowledge him, if we go through the motions, then he'll fix us up. After two days, this, after three days, everything will be fine. In verse three, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. It seems good. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Again, it seems like they're expecting a predictable God. And if you read through the Old Testament, you find regularly God's people fell into this kind of thing. And you might think, well, it seems like you're really stretching that. I think what confirms us in the inadequacy of this repentance in verses 1 through 3 is God's response. Because God doesn't seem very impressed. Down in verse 6, he says, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. But in verse 4, he says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Now, what I want you to see here, because I hope that always when you read the scriptures or you come to RUF, that you're understanding more and more of the character of God. The the character of God that comes out in verse 4 is one of heartbreak more than anger. And part of the way you see that is this word, Ephraim. Do you know what that word means? It's like a pet name that you would have for your lover. It's not the normal name of Israel. It's an intimate lover's name. And and God basically reveals himself as a heartbroken lover. What can I do with you? Oh, Ephraim. And that O is always an intensification kind of word. It's not, oh, I don't know what to do with you. It's, what can I do with you? Oh, Ephraim, what can I do with you? Your love is like the morning mist. Now, lest you think that that's a nice, sweet image, it's actually not a very nice image. Because what happens to the morning mist when the sun comes up? It's gone. So what God is actually saying is, at times, your love is really beautiful, but it doesn't last. It's like the morning mist. Missed. So what God is saying here is I'm married to a fickle lover whose feelings come and go, but I love her dearly. What can I do with you, O Ephraim? Now I will point out, if I ever get to do your wedding, I almost always preach from this passage. (laughs) I do, yeah. You know why? Because it's a really great wedding passage. It really is. I know it might seem strange to preach the book of Hosea at people's weddings because it's about adultery. That's okay. 
it's okay. Here's why, you, here's why this is such a good passage for that. Because I always tell people, look, we don't, we don't dress up in our finest and come together and hope that all of the pomp and circumstance that we go through on your wedding day will enable you to love another sinner for the next 30, 40, 50 years. If your love for God, who is perfect and unchanging, is like the morning mist, how can you possibly hope to love another sinner? No day can do that. No day can do that. No person can do that. And so it's important that as you make vows to one another, which are pretty, in some ways, maybe you feel the weight of that, vowing to love someone for sickness and in health, not knowing what the future may hold, the only way you do that is if you hear God making vows to you. Vows that don't end with death, but vows that were sealed by his death. Therefore, death can't undo them. You only make vows till death does you part. But God says, I will vow to you. As Romans 11 says, the calling and gifts of God are irrevocable. Maybe that's Romans 9. It's in there somewhere, 9, 10, 11. So the morning mist, your love for God is like the morning mist. As Robert Robertson sang so well in these lines from Come Now Fount that resonate, I think, with every true Christian. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. And I don't know, you know, if, if, you're, if you consider yourself a Christian, if you're able to embrace that or if you're afraid to say that. Listen, God knows that. If you don't know that, then I hope that you will come to understand that. And as we go through this, I hope you'll come to understand that God's love is not thwarted by you being prone to wander. But God doesn't just sit back. He does something about their love that's like the morning mist. What does he do? Look at verse 5. Therefore, Whenever there's a therefore, that means you should connect to what came before. What's, the, what's this a response to? It's a response to the fact that their love is like the morning mist, yet he loves them. Oh, Ephraim, what can I do with you? I'm torn apart, but I've got to do something. I can't leave things as they are. So I'm going to send my prophets, and I'm going to give them words that will cut you. Cut you. He sends his prophets to cut his people, to expose the false love hiding in these mechanical rituals. Understand this is grace, and it comes from a heart of love. And I'll just say as a little aside, you're a very immature person if you define love as somebody who always encourages you and never speaks hard truth to you. And I hope you understand that. When it comes to having a relationship with God, if he loves you, of course he's going to say hard things to you because all is not right. And then he reiterates his goal, which has always been a rich relationship of love. Look, in verse 6, I desire. Isn't it amazing that God even uses that word? I, so many people think of God like the philosophers, as like abstract ideas, and they're like, how can he be all loving and all good, and then we have evil? But like, let's, you know, Get God out of the realm of the philosophers. God is a person who uses this kind of language. I desire steadfast love. That's the, the Hebrew word hesed. means covenant love. I desire that kind of covenant love and not sacrifice. 
the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The burnt offerings, the sacrifices, that was always about teaching you that God has to provide a way for sinful people to be in a rich relationship with him. And he's committed to do it. The sacrifices and the burnt offerings weren't the way. They pointed at the way, which the book of Hebrews tells us was Jesus who comes as the sacrifice that all those other sacrifices were pointing to. But look at verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. This is what the covenant is about. It's about God marrying himself to his people. And I would submit to you, that's unlike the understanding of really any of our other religions. Uh, Islam would never embrace that kind of idea. It's way too familiar. You can talk to any Muslim, they would tell you. The idea that God would marry himself to his people is offensive. The Eastern religions, it would make no sense at all, right? Because they don't have the idea of a personal God. But Christianity and the Judeo-Christian tradition teaches this, that God is a God of desire who marries himself to his people and even reveals his heart that's torn open. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Now, I want to draw a little a couple things from this, and then we're going to look at a different passage about repentance. Here's the thing. Even religious stuff can be about trying to control or manipulate God. And I want to talk a, a bit about the difference between penance and repentance. Now, some of you may have grown up in Catholic tradition. Catholic Church believes there are seven sacraments. Protestant Church believes there are two. But one of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church is penance. Um, penance is really about getting God to forgive you based on your promise to reform and do better next time. And it's when you say to God, and, and this is, I, I don't think it's unique to Catholics, because in my experience, Protestants do penance a lot. They just don't know what to call it. Sometimes they call it repentance. But, but here's, here's penance. This is what it looks like for Protestants and evangelicals to do penance, but maybe they're not realizing it. It's when you say to God, okay, Look, I screwed up. I know I screwed up. But I promise, if you let me off the hook this time, I'll never, ever do this again. Now, that's asking for forgiveness based on what? Based on your sorrow and your promise to reform your life and to not do it again. And it sounds like a spiritual thing. Just like this repentance at the beginning seemed like a good thing. Let's return to the Lord. But not all returning to the Lord actually is a re real returning with the right motivation. See, the problem with this kind of returning to the Lord, saying basically forgive me because I promise never to do this again, is there's no Jesus in it. Like Jesus is nowhere in that formula. You're asking God to forgive you based on what you will do rather than what Jesus did. And second, God's not in the practice of taking the word of liars. Because you may not realize it, but that's a promise you can't keep. And all I can say is, it's good news that God does not base his forgiveness upon your promise to do better, and particularly on you keeping that promise. And I know that most of you would say, yeah, I agree with that, but I think most of us don't live that way. And the reason I know that is because if you talk to somebody who's a Christian about sins that they've committed after they become a Christian, 
they generally have a much harder time feeling like God could forgive those. Isn't that interesting? They feel like if I knew better, like I shouldn't have sinned. And I just say, okay, so you're going to grovel in it and show God that you really, really are really sorry, hoping that that can add something or persuade him to forgive you? If that's what you think, you don't understand the gospel very well. Because the good news of the gospel is that everything necessary for God to smile at you was secured by what Jesus did at the cross. He doesn't need you to qualify for his grace by feeling really bad about your sin. He doesn't. Uh, I would also say, you know, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of this that happens in churches where you rededicate your rededications. So sometimes it's just this internal thing. There's some churches where it's actually a formalized practice. You know, where people come forward at a meeting, and if you're not asking Jesus to come into your heart, you're rededicating your rededications. And it's this whole, like, it's like the hamster on the wheel. Just run. It's like, and it's almost like the whole thing is like, feel bad, and then, you know, promise with a lot of tears that you're going to be better. And over and over and over again. And the problem with that is it really, it really distorts who God is. God does not require you to convince him to be kind to you. There's nothing that you can do better than what Jesus did. And anything you try to add to what Jesus did is actually offensive. True repentance is about turning from sin to God, not turning from sin to your promise to do better. True repentance is about sanity being restored as you see his heart of love. It's about speaking honestly with one who loves you to clear the air and have your relationship renewed. True repentance is about joy rather than groveling. And it's a lifestyle. Next year, or actually now we are in 2017, so in October, we'll celebrate the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg. And the 95 theses were points that Martin Luther said, we should talk about these things, because we've kind of gotten away from the Bible on some stuff, and I want to raise some points that we could talk about. Do you know what the first one is? When, when Jesus said that we are to live or we are to repent, what he meant was we are to live a life of repentances, plural. It's interesting. That was one of the most important things of the Reformation, is that penance, groveling before God, and hopefully like moving him to want to be merciful to you, is just really so opposite of the heart of the gospel. God doesn't need your groveling to love you. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, here's a helpful sign to know whether or not you're getting what I'm talking about. How long do you have to sit in your sorrow over your sin before it's okay for you to come to God? In other words, if you're looking at porn and you get convicted of it, do you have to Sit there for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 
an hour, maybe a day or two before you feel like you can speak to God about it. And I would submit to you that you shouldn't have to wait at all. Because it's not about adding motivation for God to forgive you. You're not, forgiveness is not based on you feeling bad about your sin. Now, should you feel bad about your sin? Absolutely. Why? Well, because it's insane. And it clouds your sense of God's love. It doesn't change his love for his people, but it certainly clouds your sense. The reason you want to go right away, I know it may seem crazy, and it's, in some ways it kind of puts a point on whether you really believe that justification, that you're pleasing to God because of what Jesus did rather than what you did, it really puts a point on say, can you go right from the moment of looking at porn to looking directly into the face of Jesus and seeing him smile at you? And if not, why not? Because what you need is to see that face. To melt your heart. You don't need to grovel and feel bad. Guilt only lasts for a season. It's like the morning mist. And love and religiosity that's based on feeling bad and trying to feel better doesn't last very long either. Too many of us think we need to qualify for God's forgiving grace by groveling or feeling bad for a while. Augustus Toplady put it so well in his great hymn, Rock of Ages, which actually was originally titled, A Living and a Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on Earth. It's kind of a mouthful, but it's actually a pretty great title. This is the prayer you need for the holiest believer. If you were the holiest Christian on earth, let's say you never looked at porn ever, Here's the prayer you would need for living and for dying. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Respite means rest. In other words, could you be fired up for Jesus all the time? Passionate for Jesus all the time. Could my tears forever flow? I mean, could you really be so moved by your sin and his love that you could just weep and weep and weep like you know you probably should? Could my zeal no respite no? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. No matter how fired up for Jesus you are, no matter how much you cry over your sin, it has nothing to do with atoning for your sin. And then the last line, thou must save and thou alone. And I don't care how long you've been a Christian, whether, you know, a few weeks, or as long as you can remember, that's the prayer you need. Let's look at the next passage, Hosea 14. This is the very last chapter in the book. And it starts out, similar kind of idea. Chapter 14, we're going to read up through the end of the chapter. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. 
I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So here God speaks truth. And God speaks promises of what he will do for his people. He speaks truth about the real problem, doesn't he? And true repentance has to come from understanding what's truly going on. What does he say? You've turned from God to your sin. Verse 3 in particular shows us that the issue is one of trust. Turning to other things for security, like Assyria, which is this superpower to the north, or war horses. That's the riding on horses image. If you've got war horses, you've got a significant uh, advantage in battle. But look at, I love this image. He says it's the same as saying, our God to the work of our hands. Let that sink in. What are you saying our God to that's not God? Maybe it's something that you trust in that you don't think you have control over, like Assyria. But actually, even to trust in Assyria is really to trust in your ability to get Assyria to protect you. So it's really about trusting in the work of your hands. Maybe you say, well, I don't trust in the work of my hands. I trust in the work of my mind. Okay, you're still saying our God if you're looking to it for security. So what we see from this is it's about trust, it's about the work of our hands, and it's also connected to fear and vulnerability. Where do you see that? Well, you see it with the thing about the orphans. In you, the orphan finds mercy. The most vulnerable group of people in the ancient world were orphans. No one to take care of them. No one. But God is the one who looks after the orphans. In other words, it's good if you would have God speak truth to you. He says it's important that you remember what I'm like. I'm the one who cares for orphans, the most vulnerable. That means you can trust me. The reason that you're trusting the work of your hands and saying our God to the work of your hands is because you're really in danger. You really are vulnerable, but you're trying to, to, to deal with it on your own, by your own ability to make alliances with people that are stronger to you that you think will protect you. You're trying to deal with it by saying, our God, to the work of your hands. But you don't need to do that when you remember who I am. I'm the one in who orphans find mercy. So God says it's about trust. It's about fear and vulnerability. And the key is for you to remember what I'm really like. Ultimately, our fears are connected to forgetting God's character in particular ways. There are different fears that different people have in this room, but they're all connected to get it, forgetting something about who God is and what he's done and what he promises to do. For some of you, you believe he's powerful, but you're not quite sure he's good. 
And for others, you may have an easier time believing he's good. You just don't think that he has enough power to do the things he wants to do. But whatever fears drive you to false trust are connected to something you forgot about God. So here you see kind of the whole thing. Remember what he's actually like if you would deal with your fear. In other words, repentance comes not just from saying, I'm a sinner. It comes actually from seeing God as the one who has mercy on orphans, on the most vulnerable. And that understanding of his character actually prompts you to come to him and return to him. It's a tremendously important insight about sin and idolatry. Because without a proper diagnosis of what's really going on, forgetting God's character, leading to fear, leading to false trust, without that understanding, all of our solutions are inadequate. And that's where he goes next. What's the solution? Well, nothing less than healing. Nothing less than healing. Because the issue is deep fear, mistrust. God promises healing in verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. It's not like, all right, I guess i got to forgive them. No, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. Don't you love that that word is there? Freely. Like without reserve. Like in an overabundant way. Do you think of God like that? He promises healing and turning aside from his anger. It's not based on anything his people do or did. In fact, it's in spite of their character and the way they've acted. And so here's what you need to understand. Grace is not God's love for the undeserving. It's God's love at Christ's expense for the ill-deserving. That's the character that prompts real repentance. And seeing this grace in the face of Jesus, secured by his work on our behalf, living and dying in the place of sinners, it actually allows us to go even deeper into repentance, to actually bring words about real stuff to God, rather than just repenting in a general way. Oh, I know I'm a sinner. If anybody ever says, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, and you say, well, in what way lately have you been sinning against God? And they don't really know, that's evidence that repentance isn't very, very deep. But it, it may not be that you just need to point out all their sins. You may actually need to point out the grace of God that sets them free to admit even to themselves who they are. Because if you're saying, our God, to the work of your hands, and you don't think there's a bigger God who's more forgiving, you'll never be able to let go of the thing you're trusting in. It's psychologically almost impossible unless you understand that God knows and forgives everything. You're never going to look inside your heart if you're a Christian and find sin that God hasn't already dealt with. So why would you be afraid? It's about sanity being restored. And it's about flourishing. And I put this quote down here from George Whitfield. I, I won't read it, but I'll, I'll just tell you. The Great Awakening, one of the greatest revivals that's ever happened in the history of the world, um, really was prompted by this sermon of George Whitfield's. George Whitfield, really the first American celebrity, the first person who would have been known by almost everybody up and down the coast. Basically, his message was, you need to repent not just of your bad works. Everybody repents of their bad deeds. Christians repent of their good works. Because as Isaiah says, your good deeds are like filthy rags 
because they keep you from throwing yourself on God's mercy. Actually, I'm going to read it. He, he says this, <laughs> before, before you can have peace in your hearts, and he's preaching actually from Jeremiah about how the false prophets say peace, peace, when there is no peace. He says, before you can have peace in your hearts, you must not only be sick of your sins, but you must be made sick of your righteousness, of all of your duties and performances. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol that is taken out of your heart. The pride of our heart will not let us submit to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you've never felt the deficiency of your own righteousness, you can never come to Jesus. There are a great many now that may say, well, we believe all this, but there's a great difference between talking and feeling. Did you ever feel the want or the lack of a dear redeemer? Did you ever feel the deficiency of your own righteousness? And can you now say from the heart, Lord, thou mayest justly damn me for the best duties that I ever did perform. If you are not thus brought out of self, you may speak peace to yourselves, but yet there is no peace. Now, that's a, strong, that's a strong thing. It's worth pondering. So let me go on and say a couple other things. Repentance is about healing. It's about sanity being restored. And it actually, the Bible teaches that it's a gift from God. It's this great passage where in Acts chapter 11. So in Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches to some Gentiles, so not Jewish people. And the Spirit falls on them, and they get converted. And he goes back to Jerusalem to report to the other apostles what happened. And they all rejoice, give glory to God, and say, God has granted or gifted, the same word, has gifted the Gentiles with repentance unto life. So Acts eleven eighteen says that repentance is something that God grants. And the reason that we know this theologically is because repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Repentance is not the thing you do so that God will give you faith. Repentance actually comes from seeing the smile of God. It's concurrent with faith. And as you go on through your Christian life, true faith is always a repentant faith. And true repentance is always a repentance that comes from seeing the kindness and mercy of God in the face of Christ. There's another great hymn. This hymn comes out of that first great awakening, a guy named Joseph Hart, um, who was a disciple of John Wesley and George Whitfield's. And he, says, he has this hymn, Come Ye Sinners. You know this hymn? Well, the original way that this verse I'm going to read you went is this. this um, All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Now, what Joseph Hart wrote, the lines after that are, and that's what we sing when we sing it in RUF, this he gives you, even feeling the need, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. And that means, think of like the Spirit like this life-giving ray that kind of comes at you. And when it hits you, it brings you to new life. That's the, the, the rising beam. It's a beam that brings you, makes you alive. So, all you need is to feel your need of him. But you can't even wump that up. This he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. That's the message of the first great awakening. It's a very God-centered, grace-centered awakening. In the 19th century at the camp meetings around here, Tennessee, Kentucky, that hymn got changed. And maybe some of you sang it in a different form where it goes, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And what was the next line in this new version? I will rise and go to Jesus. 
Now that's real different. Because that leaves you saying, okay, I need to feel my need of him. I need to feel my need of him. Any introspective, like morbidly introspective people here? Don't lie. Yeah, all of you. Everybody's looking down. Because that's what it means to be a college student in the 21st century. Like you worry and think about everything. Like that's just death, that second great awakening version. All you need to do is feel your need. Did you really feel your need enough? How are you sure you felt your need enough to become a Christian? Like, feeling your need becomes the thing that qualifies you for grace. And it, that's death. And it's not the gospel. Right? So when Matthew Smith, who used to be in RUF way, way back, um, he'd grown up in a church where they always sang the, the altered version. And w we used to sing that full original version with a really schmaltzy tune. Um, I'm, I won't even try and sing it. Because the guy who wrote it is my friend. But... Um, <laughs> Didn't go to Belmont, you know, so of course it's a schmaltzy tune. No, I'm teasing. Well, anyway, so we sang this to the schmaltzy tune, and Matthew was like, whoa, wait, those are words I've never read. And I explained to the story. I was like, well, these are the words that Joseph Hart wrote. Um, it got changed in the 19th century when the theology changed. And he was like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. And so he comes and he writes this new tune, and we've been singing it ever since. But that's, it seems so spiritual, just like the beginning. It seems so spiritual. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Well, I'll rise and go to Jesus then and proclaim my, how much I feel my lack of fitness. Listen, last thing. God's love doesn't just restore our relationship with God. I love the end verses here. It brings true human flourishing. If you think the whole point of the gospel is just to make you not guilty and save you from hell, I would just say you have a very impoverished grasp of what God is promising in the gospel. Because here there's all these images of what he's going to do for Israel, his people, and it's all about blossoming, shoots spreading out, beauty, right? Healing and restored relationship with God brings true human flourishing. Because secure in his love, we can be who we were made to be. That's why repentance is a restoration of sanity. It's turning from the insanity of thinking you can live and make life work on your own to coming to rest in him. Isaiah 30 says, in repentance and rest is your strength. Repentance is equated with rest in the Bible. But most people think of it as a work that they got to do, and they got to do sufficiently well to get God on their side. Now, the last thing I'll say, true human flourishing has a shape to it. It's not just ooey-gooey feelings. It actually corresponds to God's law. The ways of the Lord are right. That's why James, the apostle James, calls God's law the perfect law that brings freedom. Try that one on for size. Most people, that, those two things just don't even go together. But the one who made you is the one who's married himself to you, and his law is good, and it's about human flourishing. Now, here's the last thing I'll say. Jesus gave up a flourishing, beautiful relationship with his father, perfect relationship with the father, to come and die a torturous death for those who spurned his love. The gospel's truly extraordinary, isn't it? And that should lead us to a deep repentance, deep repentance, seeing the mercy of God and the sinfulness of sin. But if all you see is the sinfulness of sin and you don't see the mercy of God, all you'll do is try and hide again. The only thing that allows you to be honest is to see the mercy of God that's bigger than all your sin.
Let me pray, and then we're going to sing the doxology. Lord, we do thank you for an extraordinary gospel. As Charles Spurgeon used to say, I thank you, God, that I have a gospel that I can bring to dead sinners. We have a great need for Jesus, as Spurgeon used to say, and we have a great Jesus for our need. And that's our hope tonight. Thank you that it's not a vain hope, but it's a sure one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.